and welcome to the 8th episode of the most serious podcast in today's episode i'll be talking to one of the global names of football joe morrison joe has prior experience of broadcasting uefa champions league europa league serie a la liga and i league he also covered fifa world cups of 2014 and 2018 with the sony 6 network and he also covered the 2016 euros he's a very popular figure in the world of football and in the world of tv anchoring He is also best known for his former show C2K which is Countdown to Kickoff wherein he he analyzed the game and uh, presented the game with some other eminent personalities of football like Sunil Chhetri Peter Crouch Joe is currently the host of Facebook Watch coverage of La Liga and today we talk about football we talk about life we also try to understand Joe's philosophy on life You can also follow Joe on Twitter and his username is @joefooty. Let's get into the episode now. So Joe, welcome to the most serious podcast. Always a pleasure. Is it serious? Someone. <laughs> That's what we'll is be really figuring serious? it out today. So, okay, sorry. Uh, um so I'm not allowed to smile. Okay. Yes. The most serious podcast. See you smiling, Joe. That's what I told you. All right. So Joe Morrison is like, oh come on Joe now if you, if you, if you, <laughs> you have to be a good sport here. So how to be serious. <laughs> so let's do it. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Who's the elephant in the room Joe? World football Champions League final set up this week. Champions League final. What do you want to talk about? Tell me where you want to be. You fire the questions at me and I'll answer them. Yes. So Chelsea versus uh, you know when when we talked about like first having you on the podcast I told you that I'm a Chelsea fan and, and you know at that time oh, yeah. I was just hoping yeah I, I'm a Chelsea supporter through and through so wow. uh, I've been watching it like uh, from well I've been supporting them from 2012 I think it's been almost eight, nine so years. were you were you at underdogs on the night of the 2012 Was it 12 final? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were you were underdogs. As in the bar underdogs in Delhi when we did the show live from underdogs. Were you there? Were you at that venue? No, Joe, I was like probably ah. 13 at that so 13 14 ah, right. <laughs> well, that, that explains it. <laughs> It's the beard, I, you know, you looked older. <laughs> so so what I was doing at that night I was watching it with mute uh, almost close to mute volume and i was just you know holding my screens inside that that was <laughs> we've all been What there like, you, you 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 got to have that phase as a football fan when you're young you're staying up all night um nah let the emotions no. go you know if you take punishment from your parents for being up late and watching the football then you take the punishment that's part of you know the cause <laughs> Take your punishment like a man. <laughs> yes, you have to. That, well, that was a crazy oh. night. A crazy night that, that night is underdogs. So I think uh I think they so I, I don't quote me on the numbers, but I think they had planned on about 250 people turning up for that live broadcast from underdogs. And I think about 800 turned up. and i think there was about another 500 outside the venue trying to get in um and it just went crazy 
So um, when we got there, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent already. It was just such a great, yeah. it'll go down in, in, as one of the greatest nights in my broadcasting life. So when we got there, they built this set, which was against the wall. Um, and myself and my executive producer, Jason, we went in and we were talking and we said, what's the point of us being here? Like we've flown over, um, the teams come in, you know, the pundits, Carlton and Bud, do you remember? Um, we've come in here to do this show and yet we're against the wall. What's the point in that? We may as well have stayed in the studio. So we decided to turn the, the set round, the location round, so that it was facing the bar and then all the fans came and congregated behind the bar, behind us. So we, we were on stools and they were all sitting behind us uh, or standing behind us. And then, of course, as the drinks were flowing, things got crazier and crazier and Chelsea were the underdogs, in underdogs. We were in underdogs, and they were the underdogs, remember, against Bayern. So, um, and, and the night just obviously went extra time, went to penalties. The night just got crazier and crazier as people got more um, well-oiled, for want of a phrase. And uh, they had these security guys that were, they were just off camera, these big guys that were looking after us, these big dudes. And uh, they were struggling to keep control of the crowd and then people were just like, uh, when the celebration started, they were just throwing beer everywhere. And, and, uh, one of the, the producers, one of the executive producers and one of the security were going crazy saying, stop throwing the beer. And I just turned and went, let them throw beer. It's like, it's celebration. It's great atmosphere. Who cares what if we it? get, who cares if we get beer in our suits and whatever, you know, like it's just. It was the moment. It was amazing energy. It was amazing atmosphere. It, it, it will go down as one of the best nights in my life. So, unfortunately, I won't be in underdogs uh, on the Champions League final this year as uh, Chelsea take on Man City. But I guarantee you it will be a good match. However, it won't be as good a broadcast as that particular night. That is for sure. <laughs> it can't be when we when we're not having to inside the studio and not telling the security buffs to let people go by how can it be that amazing oh, look hey look look i know they wanted to protect us and do their job and i understand that but you know what no one was threatening everyone was just going crazy too much to drink it wasn't you know no one was going out to hurt us or anything like that they were just you know they were just celebrating they were just having a good time awesome so joe uh let's uh, let's talk about uh, this was like uh, this was on my mind because uh, the day before yesterday the semi final second leg was the real madrid chelsea chelsea won i was going crazy at that night also you know it felt like just an amazing achievement because not probably was expecting that we would go through but still uh, i thought that madrid could score did you watch that match no, the, i didn't uh, i saw the highlights but i didn't watch the game no yeah so i think that was crazy so you've been following, like you've been covering Indian sports as well, Indian football particularly. So let's talk about that. I al I've always wondered, like, how do people outside of this Indian bubble view view the Indian football situation? So, so what's the deal there? How do you feel, like, the people outside of Indian Asian subcontinent? Uh, how do they feel about Indian? Football? Well, it, it's not taken as seriously as. It's not. Yeah, it's a good question. It's not taken as seriously yet, but that's for a number of reasons. One is Indian clubs haven't competed at a really serious level in AFC competition. 
and that's just starting now. Um, also, the national team has not really threatened the top teams in Asia. And when I say threaten the top teams in Asia, I'm not talking about one-off, uh, fabulous one-off efforts like, for example, the game against Qatar. Uh, I was going to say last year, but it wasn't last year. It was even longer than that. I feel like I've lost a year of my life like everybody has because of the pandemic. But um, so they're not really taking that seriously yet. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that they, they need to be in the top 10 in AFC rankings to be taken seriously. And they're not in the top 15 at the moment. They're outside the top 15. So once they're inside the top 15 and they put a foundation down, then you can start to talk about Indian football. And then when they're inside the, the top 10 of AFC rankings, then we can get really serious and they will be taken seriously. So that's number one. And number two is you need a player to go outside of India for the world to sit up and take notice. So, um, and that has not really happened except for uh, brief spells from Sunil Chetri um, and when he went to Sport in Lisbon B and, um, and, a, and a longer spell from Gapreet Singh Sandhu. So those are the only two players that have really, um, what's, the, what's the word, have, have pushed the frontier forward. Um, and, and a little bit earlier than that, you could give credit to Bai Chung Butia as well, um, from way back when, what was that in the nineties? I think it was, wasn't it? The Bai Chung went then, but football wasn't, there wasn't as much noise about football in the nineties globally as there is now. So, uh, Bai Chung was before all of that social media era and the explosion in global rights of football. So those are the two main things. Uh, those are the two main things, Rippy, that you basically need for, for people outside of India. And when I say people, I mean everyone, fans, uh, businesses, corporations, uh, sporting bodies, for them to take Indian football seriously. You've got to push and push and push and push and get in that top 15 and stay there and get in the top 10 and stay there before you can become. And it, it, and it can be done, by the way. It's been done by the likes of South Korea, who weren't um, a powerhouse in Asian football 30 years ago. So it can be done. Right. Yeah. So do you think like, uh, is the ISL, uh, is the ISL a big step in the right direction or would you say it's somewhere around the right direction or you, because it's a very flashy kind of thing because they've used the marketing well, they've, they've planned it well, but how do you feel about that? Yeah. So, uh, here's my opinion on the ISL and a lot of people have, um, a misconception of my opinion on the ISL. So first and foremost, uh, there are many things wrong with the ISL. There are many things that the ISL has got right. And there are many things with regards to the ISL which are better now than they were in their first couple of seasons. Uh, someone, I forget who it was, messaged me the other day and it, the message boiled my blood because they suggested that the ISL was a better competition in seasons one and two than it is now. Bollocks it was. Absolute bollocks it was a better competition. You had finished over-the-hill players that couldn't play. Um, uh, who was it? Was it Del Piero? No, it wasn't Del Piero. Or was it Trezeguet? Who was the player that played something like 40 minutes of the entire season one of ISL? I think it was a former Juventus player. Uh, it was Trezeguet, anyway, I think. The point of the matter... Was it, was it, was it Trezeguet? Um, anyway, someone that was, it'll come to me, it'll come to me. Someone that was just injured for the entire tournament. So you had a lot of these over the hill players that didn't care. They were just coming for a, one final payday. The money that they were getting 
in the three months, and that was their contracts in season one, three-month contracts, was the same as they were getting for a year in another league. So they just went, yeah, <laughs> yeah, where do you want me to sign? I'll do this. Plus, you had all that flashy IPL nonsense, yeah? Now, look, I am all for, and I totally understand, that the match day experience of the I-League was awful, terrible. The match day experience needed to be improved. I've been to the Salt Lake Stadium for the Calcutta Derby. Um, the, the, the facilities are shocking. What's on offer for fans is shocking. I'm not saying that they have to be in the same level as, say, uh, Spurs' new stadium or um, uh, the, the Emirates uh, Stadium, for example. I'm not saying that they necessarily have to be that level, but these stadia are crumbling. They're in a bad way. There's nothing on offer for the fans. There's no match day experience. So ISL got the match day experience bang on. They, they did brilliantly. You mentioned the marketing. Um, the marketing, fabulous. They had a solidified broadcast contract in place right from the get-go. Brilliant. Well done. The I-League, every season of its inception, sometimes just days before the tournament began, was still negotiating a broadcast contract. Why is that important? If you don't have a broadcast contract, you don't have an audience. If you don't have an audience, you don't have eyeballs. If you don't have eyeballs, you cannot go out to commercial sponsors, advertisers, and corporates and ask for money because nobody is watching. It's as simple as that. So all of those links are part of the chain that needed connected. The ISL now, in my opinion, is more mature and it's a better product. And it's also a better product as well because back in season one of the ISL, you had a tiny, tiny pool of what I would call elite level uh, Indian professional football players. Now, that entire pool of Indian football players would all claim they were professional. They weren't professional at all. I'm sorry, they weren't. They might have been professional in name, but they weren't. They were semi-pros at best. The way they trained, the way they looked after themselves, their standards of fitness, technique, coaching, etc. was just, it was not even semi-pro. Now, that pool of quality talent is getting bigger and bigger by the season. And that's been enhanced by... Little changes to the format, such as removing each year uh, one of the foreign player quotas. And I hope, and it, it is going to happen in the next couple of years, we will get to a point where it's three plus one. Three foreigners plus one foreigner from AFC, and the rest are all Indian players. So, that it, it, you know, we're now in a situation that there is in, enhanced competition for places and enhanced um, uh, structure, if you like, for young Indian talent to come through. So it's a much better thing. However, <laughs> however, there's a caveat to this, the money. And this tears me apart. It really tears me apart, Rippy, because um, there's half of me that say, great, Indian players were underpaid under the old I-League system. However, now there are young players getting contracts for which they're just not worth it then just not worth the money. And what does that do? And why is that a problem? It's a problem because there are certain young players who I think are talented enough to go outside of India and play in better leagues around the world, enhance their own personal skills, bring those skills back to India. When they play for the national team, they enhance the national team. But now they're being advised not to go to other parts of the world. Why? 
because the initial money that they might be on may be less. And their advisors, all they look at is a quick payday. I can get more money out of commission from keeping this player in India than I can from that player going outside and earning a lesser salary, but, but enhancing their skills and qualities. So to sum up your question about the ISL, some things the ISL have done absolutely fabulously and they've taken the, the, the game on in India. There's other things they've actually dragged the game back. I, I totally agree with the, with the part that uh, the players are not uh, entirely motivated to go outside them because I, I totally agree with this point because if you're looking if you're looking from an objective point of view, you can't look at the short-term gains because that puts you in a bubble that Indian football has been for a long time if 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 you're looking at a progressive change. So I also believe that if players go out, Gurpreet Singh Sandhu went out, Sunil Chetri went out and they, they came back as even if it was a short-term loan or if it was a short-term uh, tenure for them playing outside of India, playing in better leagues. So that that they were, they were up... short term. Gapreet was there for three years. Sunil Chetri was out for a year. So yeah. they weren't short term. Yeah. Yes, there have been other players that have gone on so-called trials, <laughs> which is a farce. But anyway, um, but no, those two in particular were not short term. They went out and they stayed out. And Gapreet in particular, you know, he earned his contract for that mm. three year period that he was there. They could have sent him back at any point. They could have decided not to even sign him. So, you know, they, they earned it. Sorry, you were, you were going to go on and say, but that's the principle of it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really tough for uh, like a guy. I respect Gurpreet for this a uh, lot for this, but because you're kind of like uh, the only person you, you're going from uh, the whole Indian football, uh, what do you say, circle, and you're staying there, you're making your worth, and you're, you're, Telling them, or you're putting it out there that you are worth it. You are worth playing in those leagues, and you are showing them your capabilities, and you're working hard for it every day. So that that talks a mm. lot about personality, character, and I believe more people or more players could uh, get get inspired by it because you do look, uh, come back look, as a better product. Look, look, let me just interrupt you there for a second. Um, and you're watching this this interview between this chest at your subject, what are you going to do? Tell me what you're going to do. You will want to go to MIT or Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge. You will want to go to the best university in your field. That'll be your ambition and your dream. Now, if you think you are the best defender in India, the best left wing, right wing, best center forward, best midfielder in India, do you not want to go to the Harvards and Oxfords and Cambridges of football, which are top five leagues in Europe, uh, certainly the bigger leagues uh, in, in Europe that are not necessarily in the top five. Uh, don't you want to go to a bigger club, a better club, a club that's playing at a higher level? India is not at that level. So this is what I don't understand about that mentality. If you believe in yourself, if you believe that you have got that ability and that talent, Go and challenge yourself. Don't listen to anyone else. Go and challenge yourself. And this is the thing. It's, it's, it's about failure and it's about being comfortable with failure and being in control of failure. You can go out, right? Even if you are there for one season or one month or even one week, you will learn more in that one week and that one month than you will in years of being involved in football in India. So you, it, it doesn't, that's not failure to me. 
you've come back as a better player. Absolutely, you've come back as a better. You've been surrounded by better players and you've been surrounded by better coaching. So anyone who thinks that, that going out is not the solution is, they're talking bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I think I totally agree. I, I believe that it's, it's building yourself. Also, it's not just about uh, the physicality of football, right? You're carrying the Indian brand out or uh, you're, you're also building that, that personality bit also. It's not, you're, you're, uh, you're building on an overall level. You're not just in inside uh, a small hemisphere of of uh, people around you. I think that's awesome. So we talk about stadiums and the level of stadiums at uh, I League or and how ISL has done it better. But I was very interested to know that which is the best stadium that Joe Morrison thinks he's been to. Which stadiums have you had the greatest experience? Anywhere of in the world or, or or in India? Anywhere in the world. In India anywhere or in anywhere? Oh. Well, first off, I've got to say my hometown club, Newcastle United. St. James's Park in a derby match was amazing. Um, you see, I always go on atmosphere. To me, I'm not bothered about how new or how old the stadium is. It doesn't mean anything to me. To me, it's about atmosphere. Um, it, and obviously, the game itself can make that atmosphere. You can have a night where it's a nil-nil draw in a, in a fabulous stadium and there's no atmosphere. Um, and then you can have another night where it's like a thrilling end-to-end 5-4 game uh, to win the league or to, to advance to the next round of a competition. Um, the Camp Nou, amazing when it's full. I've been lucky enough to stand pitch side um, and broadcast from the Camp Nou Barcelona, um, especially when it's full, when it's 98,000 there. The Salt Lake Stadium. In Calcutta, amazing atmosphere for the derby match. Um, where else? Anfield on a European night is pretty special. Uh, goodness me, I've, I've been to so many stadiums that it's hard to, to pick one out. The De Kuyp Stadium, um, PSV Eindhoven. The De Kuyp Stadium is a, is a cauldron. The fans are electric. Uh, the De Kuyp Stadium is, uh, it's very strange because the players come out of a trap door. I don't know if you've seen the film Gladiator and, uh, the gladiators are down in the bowels of the, of the arena. And then they open up this trap door and they come up the steps and into the arena where they do their gladiatorial, uh, duties and kill each other. And lions and tigers come out. Well, the De Kuyp Stadium is designed very similar. So it's a tunnel which is down below the pitch. And a trap door opens up, but they don't open that trap door until the players are just about ready to come out for kickoff. And I've spoken to players that have been in that position and they say those steps up to the pitch at the Dequeep Stadium, your legs feel like lead. You feel like you're 3000 kilos. The steps feel like you're climbing Everest because what you, the trap door is uh, not only sealed, but it's got this, um, I don't know how to describe it. it it's like, a, uh, it's like, um, it's like a lining to the trapdoor. So you can't hear very well the atmosphere of the stadium itself. So when it opens up, that's when you hear the noise and the noise just rushes in and down the tunnel, down the steps, down the tunnel and hits you like this wave, like this tsunami of noise. So, um, that's pretty spectacular. Um, I think there's not many stadiums that I've, there's still a lot of stadiums that I haven't been to that I'd like to go to. Um, but I think there's only one or two that I want to, 
tick off my list before I die. Signal Iduna Park in Dortmund, um, I haven't been to. I've been to many Champions League stadiums. I've been to the San Siro in Milan, which is pretty special. I've been to um, the Bernabeu, obviously. Um, and, and there's some places that are in Marseille, the Velodrome in Marseille. Oh, wow, what an atmosphere that is. Um, and, and actually, when I went to the, the Velodrome in Marseille, it was when Didier, it was Didier Drogba's last season. Here you go, you're a Chelsea fan. It was Didier Drogba's last season at Marseille before he transferred to Chelsea. I think it was 2002 or 2003. Um, and so Bobby Robson, who was the coach of Newcastle United at the time, tried to buy Drogba um, the summer before. And the price quoted for Drogba at that time, I think, was three million pounds or three million euros. And I think Drogba eventually moved to Chelsea for, was it 21 or 22 million? Um, the Chelsea fans will, will correct me on this. And what a player he turned out to be for Chelsea. I think probably the best or one of, certainly one of the best, but probably the best striker that Chelsea have had in the modern era, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, the velodrome. So they had these banners. And what they do at the velodrome is they, uh, they have the chance that the fans have chance. And they're all in different sections of the stadium. So there's the two ends and then obviously the opposite sides of the pitch. And they chant. The rest of the stadium says silent. And one end behind the left-hand side goal chants to the right-hand side. And then they reply. So they go silent. And then they reply the chant and throw it over to the far side of the pitch. And you, it's there's things like that. And this is why I can't wait. I can't wait, Ripu, until they uh, get fans back into the stadiums. Um, this is why uh, you don't get that atmosphere on TV. You don't experience that same um, ingredients on TV. So uh, when you're there, you hear the noise all at one side and then it goes silent and then it goes to the other side and then it goes silent. And then it goes over there and then it comes back over here. It's an amazing, uh, amazing atmosphere velodrome. So, yeah, I, I, if you asked me to pick one, I couldn't I couldn't pick one. That's every every football fan's dream to to be to some of these legendary stadiums. It's it's the atmosphere, right? It's it's that vibe that you feel in that moment, particularly, and the energy. It it's just irreplaceable. You can't. Uh, there are just some things in life that you just can't experience. And if you try explaining it to a non-football fan, there's just a mass of people standing there cheering some random names or chants. They just don't work. They just Your won't get just it. Gonna repeat. I can't hear you. Yeah, so I was just talking about the vibe and and the aura that these stadiums have. Yeah, they they um, look they're they're all unique in their own way, but uh, you know you're right. It's about the fans. The fan the fans make it, and I think watching football without fans over the last year, I think, has been a much lesser experience. Even with the fake crowd noise and all the rest of it, it's a much lesser experience than it is. Even watching on TV at home, it's a much lesser experience uh, without the fans than it is with the fans. Yeah, right. I think for everyone who's watching on TV, like uh, people like me, and uh, so it's definitely a relief that football's back because the time, I think it was three months or something, more than 100 days, mm -hmm. then there was no football. It was like people were making uh, people were making jokes like if there's now, you know, it was some two championship teams, uh, Bournemouth and... Uh, some some other team playing. I, I won't I won't think about for a second before watching that match. 
or something and people were yeah, just going too. crazy yeah i i feel the same yeah, way yeah me, me me too hey I I would watch anything. I in those couple of months where we didn't have any uh sport. I would have if, if someone had put a cricket match in front of me on TV, I would have watched it. And I hate cricket. It's the most dullest boring sport on the planet. But I would have watched it because just because it was live competitive action. Yeah, some some Indian guys triggered after hearing that cricket is the most dull sport. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's not even a sport. it's a pastime it's a hobby let's smoothly skip over that before most of my audience no, goes who's this it. guy you got on here yeah so jo let's let's talk about the beginning of this football journey for you when was it like uh, was it when did you start you are you are a newcastle fan i know but uh, was it starting because of you played football with your friends and uh, you watched newcastle matches and you were thoroughly interested to do something in the football media field or was it a series of events it was a series of events but yes it starts with with you being involved in the sport as a kid and you know that's why the the cultural element of any sport doesn't matter what it is is so important um so you know anyone going back to the cricket thing um there'll be a lot of people watching this that will have pictures of um virat kohli or dhoni or whoever um and that's the hero that they look up to and this is why i said earlier about it's so important that an indian player gets out of india and becomes a hero elsewhere in the world so that someone growing up that's younger than you and i can put them up as the hero their picture on the wall um so i had pictures of kevin keegan peter beardsley Paul Gascoigne um plus my friends they were all you know they all supported Newcastle United Newcastle is a one team city as well so you don't support any other club if you're from Newcastle so so that you're surrounded by that culture the the bit in terms of working in football and working in broadcast was completely by accident it was a it happened at a much later day i um i studied agriculture um at school uh at, at university sorry um so i kind of always had planned on going somewhere down the agriculture route farming you know um i i thoroughly support what's happened with the farmers over the last year they're so important to the world i mean they feed us um so i and i ended up because of the uh the last oh, sorry there was a, a bit of a recession around about nine, mid 90s when i was coming out of university and there wasn't many jobs going and my father had a little uh, news agent shop um selling newspapers magazines cigarettes I, i don't know what you call them in india a little tobacconist kind of kiosk um and i worked in there and there was a guy from the bbc who used to come every morning really early 6:30 a.m. and collect his uh, his newspapers and his cigarettes and what not and we would always talk we would talk for 15 20 minutes about football and sport and broadcasting and he just harassed me for in a nice way he harassed me for the best part of 2 years and said you know you should get involved uh you have a good knowledge of sports you have a good voice you personality I don't know about the personality but um so um and i just kept saying no 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 i was too shy now that i look back at that time i was just too shy that was the top and bottom of it and i didn't i didn't have enough belief in myself i don't think i didn't have the confidence to think that i could go front of camera or front of microphone and broadcast and 
and um, and do that. But so anyway, I took a plunge one day and said, yes, let's give it a try. And the rest, as they say, is history. So there you go from there to here. That's that's amazing, Joe. That's an amazing journey. It was, ne so, it was never my uh, dream. It was never my dream. It was never my it was never my dream to to be on TV. It just kind of happened and then accelerated and snowballed and just got bigger and bigger. You know, it was never really a plan. So when did it uh, like? Uh, did you take a moment as you were progressing through this journey, and did it ever strike you that this is completely not what I thought? that i would turn out to be and and it just hits you in in a wave sort of ki how did I, how did i land here i was i was just watching football on tv and discussing it to a old chap <laughs> uh yeah it it does actually it has and it does and i still think about it and I, and i'm coming towards the end of my career now so um i think uh I've thought about it more lately than maybe I did before. I know that certainly, so my father passed away about maybe 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I think it was. And my father, like, and I'm sure there's many watching this who will understand, you know, parents. My father never wanted me to get into this because it's risky, uh, it's volatile, it's tough. It's a very tough business to get into, number one, and then to stay in it is uh, very hard as well. So he wanted me to go down a traditional PR and marketing route or, you know, you need to get into marketing. If you want to do marketing in sport, then I'll support that, son. Um, but no, no, you're not doing broadcast. You're not doing TV. That's that's too volatile. And, and there's probably many of you have had the similar kind of conversations with your parents as well. You might have an ambition or a dream to do something else, but mom or dad says, no, you're going to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> You know, are you going to be a lawyer? And that's it. There's, there's, there's no argument. There's no question about it. So it's hard. It's difficult. Um, and it's difficult, especially in the early years as well, because you don't make a lot of money at it. So um, you'll get your parents. Uh, my mother was very supportive. My father, not as supportive. But, you know, you'll get your father saying every year, year after year, uh, this is your career. And you've, you've, you've made no money this last year. You can barely feed yourself. You've made just enough money to put fuel in your car and, and to uh, pay your basic uh, bills and, and uh, food shopping, etc. So um, it takes a lot of stamina and self-belief, I think. Resilience is probably the best word to describe it all. Uh, it takes a lot of resilience to keep going and keep going. But the good thing about that is that it forced me to not think about the money. And I think too many people go into this and too many people go into professional sport as well because of the money and the fame. No, 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 no. You get into professional sport, and this is why I'm coming back to what I was saying earlier about Indian players, young Indian professional players. You get in this to be the best striker, the best defender, the best goalkeeper, in India, not to be, and, and if possible, to be the best in Asia. And then if possible, above that, to be the best in Europe. And if possible, to be the best in the world. That's why you should get into it. Not because you're going to earn, you know, another uh, 40 lakh over here because if you stay. that I'm sorry, that means you're not confident in your own ability. You don't have self-belief. And you're a little bit of a fraud. You're a professional fraud, really. So you have to have passion. And I see so many uh, young people in India 
um, under the age of 30 who have tremendous passion, but they don't have the resilience. As soon as the tide goes against them, quit. That's it, I quit. I go do something else. No, 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 no. You have to get through that failure and get through the next failure and get through the next failure. And then you'll start to find that things are going for you. You know, bits of luck that you didn't have at the beginning suddenly happen. How does that work? You know, is how, how does how does God work that one out? So, um, yeah, I hope that kind of answers your question. Have I gone off tangent a little bit? <laughs> no, no, that was more than on the tangent. It was the best answer I think that you could give because I love conversations like these wherein. I get to talk to people like you and you know uh, because when you have not done something in particular and you just you like to talk about things and and you're not particularly getting into action oriented phases and you're you're just doing it for some time and then before it actually could make some substantial amount of uh, anything any anything that could happen in that field and you pursuing it before it if you give up then it kind of it is a, it is a half ass thing to do right and you won't end up achieving anything in any domain because it it goes for it goes for everything right so what what do you think is uh, is more important like uh, should people try to figure out ways that what what am i passionate about or is it more about like you know try everything stick with some things so what, what do you think if a, if a young kid who follows Joe Morrison on tweets, retweets them back, and thinks that I, I'm going to be sitting in that one, in that chair one day. What should he do? So the one thing I'll say is um, be honest. Now, what I mean by be honest is it's not about telling the truth. It's about being honest with yourself. And most young people that I meet, um, I don't know what it is as a percentage, you know. Um, there's many who are not honest with themselves. So coming back to what you said, passion, absolutely and utterly passion is number one. It really is number one. And alongside passion, you have to have the ability to overcome failure for failure. So, um, you know, you're a very proud people in a proud culture. I'm a proud person as well. Many of us are proud. We're proud to a greater or lesser level. The problem with pride is when you fail, you disappear. Because you're so ashamed that you failed. To me, I would not be sitting where I am today if it wasn't failure. And most people don't see, they don't see the auditions that I went to and didn't get. The jobs that I, there was one job in particular as a commentator for the BBC. I was told the night before the announcement, I was going to get this staff BBC commentary job. And just to give you a little bit of background, um, working at the BBC was a dream come true to me, but I was a freelance at the BBC. Once you were into the BBC, it's this global institution and you have a job for life. Um, and that's amazing. It's security and everything comes with that. Um, and I was told the night before that I got this job for a permanent staff position as a commentator for the BBC. And so I was so excited and went home that night and like, you know, couldn't sleep. And the next morning I was supposed to go into the office to do all the formalities and to be confirmed, basically, um, as a staff member of the BBC. Anyway, something happened. I still, to this day, don't know what happened. But between that night and the next morning, um, I didn't get the job. I, I, I didn't get that. So I'd been told 
by one of the bosses the night before. They said, Joe messaged me, said, uh, you've got the job. Don't say anything. It'll be confirmed in the morning. The next morning, didn't get the job. I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. Because um, not only was it the BBC, but it was a staff position, which meant you got a pension, a confirmed salary. It wasn't based on, on freelance hours. So, you know, one day work here and two days work there. Um, and I was absolutely devastated. So, and there's been so many times where I didn't get this job or uh, times when I've done a show where things went wrong and they were my fault, those things that went wrong. Now, if you don't have that resilience to just forget about the failure and do it again and do it again and to try again, um, then you will not go anywhere in life. So I would say follow your passion. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason to follow your passion is not because you think you're more passionate than anybody else. There are lots of passionate people about a lot of things in this world. The difference is if you are really true to yourself and you're truly honest with yourself, and you're not lying to yourself, and you're not bullshitting yourself when you look in the mirror, that passion will make you work an extra two or three hours every night, will make you go that little bit further than the person who gives up. So that passion connected to the resilience, yeah, those two things together, it makes you go further. And it's like, uh, I liken it to one of these, uh, you know, these crazy people, Rippy, who do these... Uh, they're not marathons. They're longer than marathons. They're like 100 kilometer races across the Sahara Desert. Yeah. yeah they go yeah. on for, for hours and hours, like extreme endurance races. That's how anyone watching should visualize their career. The longer you go, the more people quit. So make sure you're resilient. So that passion and resilience should carry you. And if you can put that together with no fear of failure, no shame in failure. I've got this mantra, which is there is no shame in failure ever. And every successful person in the world, and I don't class myself as a successful person. I can class myself as someone who's achieved a fair bit, but I'm not successful. I'm not Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. They're successful people. They have no fear of failure. How many times did Steve Jobs cock it up and get it wrong? He got kicked out of Apple, man. If that's not failure, then I don't know what is. So when you look at all of these heroes or someone that you put up there, make sure you understand their failures. Don't look at their successes. Everyone wants to read about their success. Forget their successes. Forget it. Not important. Focus on their failures. Find out where they failed and how they failed and what they did when they came back from failure. That's the reason I'm still sitting here now. I've seen a lot of, um, what shall I say, talented people come into my industry, and I'm being honest here, uh, more talented than I am, a lot more talented than I am, and they're no longer in this industry. And the reason they're no longer in the industry is because they couldn't get over the failure. They couldn't get over a setback. That's the way it works. No shame. And, and don't listen. If you're, well, if you're, and and this, is a, this is a big issue, a big issue, and I'll just, the final thing I'll say on this, it's a huge issue in... A, uh, I was going to say Indian culture, but certainly South Asian culture. Huge pressure from your family, your parents, to achieve what they want you to achieve. And why do they want you to achieve it? They want you to achieve it so they can tell their friends and tell extended family members, my son is a doctor uh, in, in America. 
but is that really what you wanted to do? You know, you, you've been railroaded down this doctor road and you could have gone on and developed some amazing app that you could have made a billion dollars at. <laughs> you know, if that was really your passion, I'm not saying go and build an app just for the sake of it, because everyone else is doing it. You can make money, forget the money. The, the most important thing is to follow your passion and what you think you're good at. You know, people say you should work on your weaknesses. Forget your weaknesses. Focus on your strengths and keep pushing on your strengths and make sure you're doing it for you, not because other people want to do it. So I have seen it firsthand when I worked at Newcastle United in parents of the academy boys, the academy football players. Quite often, the fathers were failed semi-professional or professional football players. And where they failed, they were forcing their son to go and be a professional football player because they saw money and they saw fame and they saw, uh, what's the word? Um, repent. It was like, um, it was like, uh, what's, what's there's, there's a word I can't remember. It'll come to me. Um, redemption. It was like a redemption for their own failure at not making it as a professional player themselves, as a father, as a parent. No, that's not the way. That's that's not the road. That that is just an amazing description of of the resilience, I think, Joe. Because uh, the way you've put it, it it's it seems so natural, right? Uh, when you when you think about it, it 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 looks like yes, everyone gets this concept. You have to have that resilience, but. Why do you think most people? Also, I believe, like in in our culture, uh, many people are, as you said, there's no shame in failure. I think that's a very strong mantra to carry and to follow if you're able to if you, if you're able to practice that in your life. But I think people also build a kind of a self image, and they think that if I fail, people around me will immediately start judging. I'm I'm on such a pedestal, and the spotlight is on me. But I don't think people care that much. I think the, I think the realization of that is very important uh that do you think because you because you in you're in such interest industry that you you might have gotten criticized for opinions right and and it's a very emotion driven sport so there are very the criticism also comes emotion driven so do you, how do you deal with it and how do you think it impacts uh, other people like how does joe morrison take it and what do other people don't do right with criticism that they can't cope with it Oh, that's a brilliant question. Absolutely brilliant question. Um, so here's the thing. Everyone wants the glory, but nobody wants the pressure. Everyone thinks that they could manage Real Madrid or, uh, or Chelsea, um, but they don't want the pressure. Um, everyone thinks that they can uh, anchor a Champions League final, but they don't want the pressure. Um, everyone wants to be famous, but they don't want to be abused on social media. I'm sorry it, it, it's connected. So here's the thing. It's like, first of all, I don't care. I'm able to look myself in the mirror. I don't physically look in the mirror, um, but I'm able to sit down and analyze. I always look back at my shows uh, and I'm able to sit down and go, yeah, that was good, Joe. Joe, you let yourself down there. So it, it's about the pressure. So the pressures for me are, are multiple. So one is the fans. Let's take that pressure first. Um, and you're absolutely right. It, it can be abuse. It can be anger. It can be, uh, it can be the whole range of emotions, but that whole range of emotions is just because of the game. So, you know, when you've had a drink too many 
and your team has lost 3-0 and Joe Morrison comes on and says they didn't deserve to win that, how do you think that fan is going to feel? Of course you're going to disagree with me. And, you know, and you're going to get a little bit loose on Twitter and go shove it up your ass. And I get that. I totally understand that. Um, now, the, the problem is that there are a lot of people in the industry who can't handle that. I don't care. I've never met you in my life. I don't care what you say. You can call me whatever you want. I don't care. So that's one pressure. The other pressure is to perform. So live performance of anything, whether you're a stage actor in the theater, uh, whether you're a, a professional sports person, anything where you have to deliver at that moment in time comes with its own pressure. That's why um, I, don't, I don't have the same respect for uh, film actors as I do stage actors. I'm just using this as one example because stage actors have to deliver on that stage and they can't go, stop, 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 stop. Uh, let's do a retake. Stop, stop, stop. Let's do take five. Stop. Let's do take 30. Uh, that's not right. Let's do take 40. They can't do that. They have to deliver it live. And I'll let you into a little secret. I absolutely hate pre-recorded television. I hate it. I don't enjoy it. I don't I don't feel it's real. I don't, I feel it's, I feel almost like a fraud when I'm doing it. So, so that's the second pressure. So one pressure is, you know, the reaction, if you like, of an audience. The second pressure is, is the actual live performance. And the third pressure is just like anyone who's watching this that works in a company. I have a boss as well. And the boss has demands. Um, the boss wants certain things and certain targets hit and uh, certain um, requirements fulfilled that are connected quite often to commercial requirements or corporate requirements. You know, the boss has got a bottom line that he has to hit, a P&L. So those are the three pressures. Now, in their own individual right, anyone that's in the working world will have these pressures, right? So when you stand up and you give a presentation to your company, you have for that one day, the pressure of doing a live presentation to your, your team or to your colleagues in the organization or sometimes to the bosses. But that's one individual pressure that's just, just that. Um, abuse online, well, probably most who are watching this won't get that. And it might just be one comment from one idiot on one day um, rather than over a period of time such as years. And then the other thing is your boss. Everyone experiences pressure from their boss. So um, you will have one of those three strands of pressure, um, but you will have them in individual um, aspects of your, your life and your career. Uh, the difference with this is they're all together in one. You, the audience, the presentation, the live presentation or performance is what it is. It's not presentation, it's a performance and your boss uh, at the same time. And I'll tell you now, Anyone, there's, there's probably folk watching who say, I could have been a professional cricketer. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. And I'll tell you why you couldn't. Not because of lack of talent. You are probably just as talented as Virat Kohli. The difference between you and Virat Kohli and the reason you couldn't make it as a professional cricketer captaining the national team is because you couldn't do it under pressure. Virat Kohli can perform under pressure. In fact, actually, Virat, the more pressure, the better he is. So... That's the difference. That is the difference between those who can do it and those who can't, which comes back to dealing and controlling that 
fear of failure. Virat Kohli, as he got to be the man he is now, he went through many stages of like, I hit a bad shot and it went up in the air, caught out for a duck. He'll have had that at times in his career. He'll have gone and done trials when he was younger and, you know, didn't perform to the best of his ability. But he performed better than the other guy who might have been a better player than him. Dealing with failure. That is the best answer I could have hoped to hear, I think. And it applies to me also a lot. I, I, took, I, I was just looking at you speak and the words coming out of your mouth, they, they were kind of transcending into me and, you know, solidifying my beliefs about how I view uh, people and life in general. So I, I don't, I, I don't I, know you. I don't know yeah. you. I don't know your talents. And when I say I don't know your talents and your skill set, I don't know them intimately. I haven't spent time with you. We don't hang out together. We're not friends. I don't know you. Know you. But what I do know is this. If you don't control that fear of failure, you will never, ever achieve whatever the talents and skill sets that you have inside you. You will never achieve them. I'll tell you now, and I'll put my house on it, that you will never achieve that. And neither will anyone else who's watching this. You've got to have that courage of your own conviction that like, you know what? If I fuck it up, so what? Move on. Try again. Awesome, Joe. That was amazing. So Sorry I believe time. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's not it. This is not a live presentation. So I think, yeah, we're just almost up on time. And uh, now that's the one question that I will use as a clickbait for this podcast would be the Messi versus Ronaldo debate. And I'll use it as a title, <laughs> Joe Morrison's view on it. So go on, Joe. Tell them. Messi. There is no debate. <laughs> Messi. Messi is the greatest God-given talent to walk the face of this planet, bar none in my lifetime. And I hope uh, any football fan in the world appreciates Messi because when he is done playing, you will understand how he is so unique and so special and so different and how he has changed the game. Only then will you understand. And I know that in my lifetime, your lifetime might be different because you're a lot younger than me. Um, but I know there will not be another less Messi in my lifetime. There'll be another Messi in the history of sport. Of course there will. But there'll not be another Messi in my lifetime. Amazing. That's the best note to, to end this podcast here. It was a great pleasure to talk to you, Joe. Honestly, I uh, apart from talking about football, and I personally didn't think that this would go at such a, you know, at a relatable level from coming from, because since I've been following you, I thought mostly it would be about football, a bit of banter, and we talk about some clubs and all. But uh, the the keynotes that you presented at right at the end of this podcast were were amazing. They, they were a lot, they were very, I think, I'll try to keep them with me and learn from them as much as possible. Yeah, go do it. You can, you can, it, it, you know, I, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry if, if I've gone off on a tangent a bit, but, uh, that's just the way it went. And, you know, it, 
I could talk all day and all night and all of tomorrow and all week about football and you know that's what I do all the time and you see me on air talking about football so sometimes it can get a bit boring and you know all my opinions on uh, on that so you know I, I I'm a big follower in the business of sport and also the psychology of sport as well and what happens behind the scenes so I hope it gives a little bit of an insight into the other side of it and this brings us to the end of this awesome episode I had a great time talking to Joe and and I took some learnings from this talk that I hope to carry with me I hope you also enjoyed it and found it relatable we will be back again soon with another amazing conversation cheers